Well, this is Resurrection Sunday, and this is the day we celebrate in earnest the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. As you all well know, we, some call it Easter, some call it Resurrection Sunday, some call it Passover or Paschal or what have you. I'm just glad to be born again and celebrating the Lord Jesus. I'm glad you're here. You came of your own free will and volition, unless mama drug you or shamed you or somebody twisted your arm and got you into the house of God. Either way, you're here. This is the day we celebrate the work of God. The Bible tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, but that we are God's workmanship. So this is the day we celebrate his work, his work on the cross, his work in the garden, his work in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then he was resurrected from the dead, as you well know, and then ascended on high. And he gave, led captivity captive, gave gifts unto men, and, and ordained apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to do the work of the ministry. Remember that? The, the thing we have to be careful of is even though we are not saved by works, because no work can ever make you righteous, you're saved by grace through faith. It's the faith of God. It's his grace uh, quickening you. But now that we are saved, we do have to be mindful to do the work of the kingdom. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are sent to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry because ministry is work. We're not allergic to work. We don't work to get saved. We work because we are saved. And so we have to be mindful. There is a balance in this kingdom for us as believers called, I call it the trifecta of grace, faith, and works. Your whole Christian um, success depends on you balancing grace and faith and works. It's like a tripod. If all you ever do is emphasize faith, you'll never accomplish anything. James says faith without works is, all right, but if all you do is works, you're going to get legalistic and exhausted and hate God. If all you have is grace, you'll never think you owe anybody an apology, yet grace comes to work. Because Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God, but uh, what I did by the grace of God, I outlabored more than they all. So, and then grace teaches us to abstain and to deny. So there's a lot of things that grace does, but there's this perfecta, this trifecta of grace and faith and works. We have to keep all three of them balanced to make sure we run our race and finish our course. Every Christian seems to be kind of predisposed to edge towards one into a rut. I either want to be a grace man. Grace, 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 grace. All right, what does grace do? It empowers you to work. It's God's ability working in and through you, which you can't do yourself. The grace to be a preacher to the uh, Gentiles. The grace to be a preacher to the Jews. The grace, the ministry gifts, the graces that are helps ministry uh, that Romans 12 talks about that we've been teaching if you come to Sunday night. If you really knew grace, grace would get you to Sunday night service. It's in a grace empowerment. It empowers you to do the work of the ministry. And then there's faith. We believe God. But faith isn't just believing. It isn't just sitting on a cushion somewhere and believing. You got to get out and do something. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. But every one of those endeavors was a work. By faith, Noah built an ark. And by faith, he overthrew and condemned the world. 120 years of work. And yet his work was by faith, graced of God, and it justified him. We could go on and on and on and on about this. This is the morning that we celebrate God's work, but once you're truly born again by his working, it puts something in you that wants to do something to build the kingdom. So this morning as we talk about the resurrection, I'm, I'm going to teach stuff I've never endeavored to teach before. It's all in the Bible, so it's nothing new, but it's, I'm going to have to pull... It's like braiding my daughter's hair, which I don't do, so I'm just going to act like I know what I'm talking about. I'm going to kind of teach this line of rope for a season, and then this line, and then this line, and then we're going to come braid them all together. And what I want you to see this morning, I'm going to teach. I'm not going to preach at you. I feel like this is the choir anyway. I want you to see how God Almighty at the cross of Calvary was able to thread so many needles of prophecy, and you just can't make it up. With all the stuff the Bible talked about and prophesied and declared and all the stuff the Jews were anticipating, for one man to come along, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and to check every box in proper timing. So much of the sovereignty of God was involved that if, if I don't, I'm not looking for hooping and hollering this morning, if our hearts don't just bend and say, my God and my King, then maybe we need to give the altar call for you to be born again. 
because there's so much to it. So we're going to look at a bunch of scripture this morning. I've got a few slides I'm going to show you that are really just pictures. We're even going to quote something called the Targum of Jonathan, which is about five or 600 years BC. We'll explain that in a moment. Go with me to Exodus chapter 12. Let's talk about the Passover. That is in essence what we're celebrating this morning is the Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12. If you're cold this morning, it's so that you can remember you're not going to hell. We did that on purpose. Not really. We did that on purpose so you can just be thankful you're not going to hell. <laughs> Exodus 12, verse 5. Now let's start in verse 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, that's the month of Bib or Nisan, uh, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house, and if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto him, uh, unto his house, take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole congregation assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Here we have the very first Passover and the laws that were given concerning the Passover lamb, which is what we're celebrating today. Though as Christians, we see Passover in Christ Jesus. The Jews encountered adjustments that had to be made when they came into the promised land, because it's one thing to celebrate Passover as slaves in Egypt striking the blood on the doorpost, but this was determined to be a memorial, a celebration for, for perpetuity. So then they changed things up when they came into the promised land to having to obey these laws, because we know the Jews love to keep their laws, but now they have to do it at the tabernacle at Shiloh, then Solomon's temple, then Herod's temple in the times of Christ. So some adjustments were made to keep the heart of the law. The thing we need to see here is that with the Passover lamb, because this begins to set up typology for what Jesus of Nazareth would soon fulfill, the Passover lamb was selected on the 10th day and he was kept for four days. Okay, that's what it says. On the 10th day of the month of Bib, which just means the month that the barley's in harvest, you're going to go select your lamb and you're going to hang on to that lamb for four days and then on the evening of the fourth day is when you kill it. Now the prescription was to slit its throat. One of the things we're going to see this morning, and again, I'm trying to teach a lot of broad subjects and then bring it together at the end. When Jesus Christ fulfilled prophecy, I use the example of like ice skating. When you ice skate, you can't move forward sitting still. So you have to push off, but you can only push so far and then you reset. And then you push so far and then you reset. So we know that Jesus Christ is the lamb. We know the end story already. When Jesus was killed, they did not slit his throat. We know that because at that point, the prophecy picks up and resets. We know from Galatians, cursed is every man that hangeth upon a tree. So now Jesus has to put down this skate and fulfill that prophecy. So how is he killed? Through crucifixion, hanging on a tree to redeem us from the curse. The Old Testament doesn't talk about the Messiah going into the heart of the earth three days and three nights, but Jonah does. And Jesus Christ then fulfills Jonah as a typology. Because it doesn't tell us the Passover lamb isn't resurrected from the dead once you slit its throat and eat it and drink. No. So we see these prophecies are picked up and fulfilled and picked up and fulfilled. And that's what makes this whole thing amazing is that Jesus Christ, through his ministry, his life, and then his, his sacrifice can come along and fulfill all these swaths of prophecy and law, which is really amazing. You can't make it up. So you have this inspection of the lamb that takes place for four days. It, just write it down. We won't jump to it just for time's sake. Deuteronomy 15, 21 tells us that when you sacrifice the lamb, it has to be spotless. And, and basically, you can't give anything lame or halt. So what happened was a, a tradition developed where the lamb would be inspected for four days. You bring the lamb into the home, it'd walk around your house, walk around your village, and everybody knows this is the, the Paschal lamb from my household. And it was open to inspection, to look for blemishes. And if it was blemished, you'd go get another one. So that is part of uh, the typology that had to be fulfilled. 
Genesis chapter 35, verse 19. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So remember, Ephrath, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel, that is Jacob, journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Eder. All right, tower of Eder. Or this is commonly called Migdal Eder. Migdal is M-I-G-D-A-L. Now let's throw this picture up here. This is from the Targum of Jonathan. Um, the Targum of Jonathan, the Targum were Jewish interpretations of the Torah that were orally transmitted or, or communicated. And um, the Targum of Jonathan was spoken of in the Babylonian Talmud, which is coming out of Babylon. So this thing is 500 years before Christ. So this is a, an interpretation, probably five or 600 years before Christ, of Genesis chapter 35. 20 and 21. And Jacob erected a pillar over the house of burying, which is the pillar of the tomb of Rachel unto this day. Verse 21. And Jacob proceeded and spread his tent beyond the tower of Eder, the place from whence it is to be the King Messiah will be revealed at the end of days. Now, this is what's nuts. This is written in Babylon. And the rabbis, they weren't called rabbis then, the rabbis looking at Genesis five, six hundred years before Christ, they say of Migdal Eder that this is where the king Messiah, Messiah is our word Messiah, the king, the anointed one, this is where he will be revealed. So keep that in mind. Five or six hundred years before Christ is born, the Targum interpretation, they're expecting Jesus they won't call him Jesus, but the Messiah, King Messiah, the anointed one, he'll be revealed in Migdal Eder. All right, go to Micah. Micah, it's in the really clean white pages after Jonah, right before Matthew. Micah 4.8. We're just going to teach this morning and braid a gospel braid. Micah 4.8. And thou, O tower of the flock, that is Migdal Eder. That is Migdal Eder. That's what the Hebrew is. Migdal, tower of the flock, Eder. That's what we saw in Genesis 35. The tower of Eder, that's where... Jacob camped after he buried his wife, Rachel, in Bethlehem, Ephrath. He camped at this place called the Tower of the Flock, Migdal Eder. And you, O Tower of the Flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So here's a prophecy. He's calling Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock. He's calling it the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Throw up the old picture. This is a tower of the flock, probably late 19th century. This is a Migdal Eder. Uh, the shepherds built these towers to watch over their flock. Throw the other one up, which is a newer one. It's, it's been restored, but this is still a popular picture of a Migdal Eater, where the shepherds would watch their flocks by night. So you have this massive tower. This is a Migdal Eater. But it's funny, lowly shepherds, this is called the stronghold of Zion. Like, this is the power of Zion. A shepherd's watchtower. Unto thee, Migdal Eater, just leave that up if you would. Shall it come even the first dominion? Or we would say, unto you shall return the first power and authority. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So now we start talking about a daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king among you? Is there your counselor perish? Why? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, 
O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. What does that sound like? Does it sound like a woman giving labor? Sound like maybe the Virgin Mary. Chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, which is where Jacob buried Rachel, and then he went a little further and camped at Migdal Eder. But unto you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time which she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Now, if you know the gospel story, the nativity, this is the verse that the scribes went to when they said, when Herod said, where's this Christ child born? They quoted this verse. He's born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. That's why they knew to go to Bethlehem. Migdal Eder is on the outskirts of Bethlehem. All right? The prophecy in Micah 4.8 says, this is God's stronghold. This is where the Christ child will be born. We know from the gospel story that the angels appeared unto shepherds as they kept their watch by night. Now, here's what Jewish tradition teaches, not the Bible. I can't find it in the Targum or the Talmud or the Mishnah or the Midrash. But this is what Jewish tradition teaches and to some degree historicity. In the bottom of these towers, because they built a lot of them, but this one's Migdal Eater in Bethlehem. Not this one, but this is what it's, we're looking at this as a model. They kept troughs that when the baby lambs were born, they would put those lambs in the trough so they wouldn't hurt themselves because after escaping Babylonian captivity and reestablishing themselves as a nation, uh, the daily sacrifices required a lamb a day. That's the law. And so they needed a place for the lambs to constantly be a food chain, if you will, or a sacrifice chain, a chain of supply chain. And so tradition and some history teaches us that the flocks at Bethlehem were the ones that supplied the daily sacrificial lambs. And so part of their tradition and culture was they had mangers that when baby lambs were born, they would put those lambs there to they calm down so they wouldn't kick themselves or hurt themselves and therefore blemish themselves and disqualify from the sacrifice they would fulfill in a year or so. But if you think there's a sacrificial lamb every day, 365 days, and there's holidays where there's two, you got to have a lot of sheep feeding the sacrificial process. So when the angels appear to the shepherds and they'll say, you will find him in a manger... They know exactly where it is because there's only one at Migdal Eater. Otherwise, it would take all day to go through Bethlehem and look at every food trough. This is Migdal Eater. This is verse, chapter 4, 8. Look again. And you, O tower of the flock, Migdal Eater, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. It sounds like Mary conceiving God. Now, why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perish? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. Chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall, be, shall he Come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. So we're seeing both nativity prophecy fulfilled, but what this means is that according to the Jews, the sacrificial lamb had to come from Bethlehem. Which would explain why. Our Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, which explains why Joseph was the reason Mary was chosen, not Mary. Because Mary was a spouse to Joseph. Joseph was a Judite of the tribe of David. 
And he's the one that had authority to raise Jesus in the law and take him to Passover and take him to all the fulfillings of the law, sacrifice him and keep the word. All right. So here we have two traditions. The Passover lamb is selected on the 10th day. He's kept for four days and inspected. And after he's found to be flawless and without blemish, he's then killed, sacrificed. All right. So let's now go to the New Testament. We also see that the lambs came from Bethlehem. It had to also be close because uh, every morning the priest would go out and get a lamb, bring it back, bring it through the sheep gate, which is on the northeast side of Jerusalem. And there's a pool there called the Pool of Israel, the sheep pool, and it would be washed there, then paraded in, and then sacrificed every morning. Bethlehem is only two miles south of Jerusalem, so that's not a fur piece. It's a woolly piece. Huh. <laughs> Let's go to Solomon. I'm sorry, First Kings. Not New Testament yet. Like I said, laying a broad typology. First Kings chapter 1. Verse 32. First Kings 1.32. And David said, Call me Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet... And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and they came before the king. The king also said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and cause Solomon, my son, to ride upon mine own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him their king over Israel, and blow ye with the trumpet, and say, God save King Solomon. So this is the coronation of Solomon, and it sets up the typology of how Jesus Christ will come. You have present Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Solomon about to be king. And what is he riding on? A mule, a donkey. And he's brought down, they anoint him, and they blow over him the trumpet, and they say, this is the king, this is the king, this is the king. All right, now jump to Zechariah, chapter 9, if you can find Zechariah. We could preach this morning, and it would fire you up, but we would probably be better off understanding why we believe the things we believe. We could be fired up about the gospel, and we should be, but to understand how Jesus Christ came along, and I just see it as threading a whole bunch of needles all at once, tying everything together, fulfilling every typology it just it should encourage our faith that this Resurrection Sunday, we're not morons. We're not fools. We're not a bunch of yokels who are just clinging to Bibles and religion and faith because we're just ignoramuses that are anti-science. No, no, no. I've never seen a modernist accomplish anything like what we've even read so far. They can't even hardly raise a kid without medicine or psychotropics. So... I'm not sure why we follow the brainiacs of today when they can't even keep a marriage together because they don't know God. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zechariah 9, 9. O daughter of Jerusalem. We saw that with Micah as well. Behold, your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off from the chariot, off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. His dominion shall be uh, from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein there is no water. So we see there that your king will come, O Jerusalem, meek and lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So now Mark's gospel. Let's jump to Mark's gospel. I just want you to see that. Looking at a lot of scripture this morning so you can understand why Jesus did everything that he did. Matthew 21.1. We'll just jump in here. Matthew 21.1. I thought I had written it down. It says, And when they drew near into Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, 
unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. So he's fulfilling Zechariah 9 here. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and straightway he will send you. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as the Lord did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt and put them on them their clothes, and they set them thereon, him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. It is biblical to put your clothes on the back of a donkey and also to put your coats down to be walked upon. Uh, we covered last week, I think, the testimony of the palm branches, which is a, a Hellenistic culture that basically it's like child, shouting and cheering. It would be the equivalent of us maybe shaking a cowbell or maybe an air horn or whatever we do at ball games to show cheering. This is what they were doing. Their palm branches were symbols of victory under Hellenistic culture. So what they're symbolizing is he's coming and we're victorious. He's coming and we're victorious. He's fulfilling the typology of Solomon in that here comes Jesus Christ down the Mount of Olives. Uh, I think it's uh, Luke or Mark says that the whole crowd began to come to him as they saw him come down the Mount of Olives. He's not even in the city yet, and they go out to him. And what you see is the fulfillment of the image we see in the coronation of Solomon because you had Zadok, you had Nathan, you had Solomon, you had prophet, priest, and king, and that's everything you have in Jesus. You have prophet, priest, and king coming into his coronation. All right? Look at uh, John 12 real quick. Like I said, we're going to jump around. In John chapter 12, it shows us the fulfillment of Solomon's coronation. Does anybody know what Solomon means in Hebrew? Peace. His name means peace. So you have the Prince of Peace being taken by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and coronated to be king. So down the Mount of Olives comes the Prince of Peace. He is the prophet. He is the priest. And all we're missing is the crowds chanting, God save the king. This is our king. John 12, verse 12, On the next day much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king. They have declared him king. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass, an ass's colt. Now this gives us an insight that we miss out if we just kind of conflate all the um, uh, triumphal entry stories. Before he ever finds the donkey, this crowd is up on the Mount of Olives, Bethphage and Bethany are two little villages side by side. They find him up there. They start shouting and cheering before he even finds the donkey. So as they're coming down into the city, down the Mount of Olives, they're already beginning to build momentum, saying, Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Now pause that. The other thing history and tradition teach us is that on this morning, that is the 10th of Abib or Nisan, on this morning, the high priest would go down to Bethlehem and pick out the Passover lamb. He is marching it back, and the tradition developed that Israel, the high priests, would go out and line the streets and wait for the high priest to come. And when they saw the high priest coming with the lamb that would be sacrificed in four days, they would begin to shout the exact same passage. Hosanna, deliver now. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So the really cool thing about this Passover is that Jesus beats them to it. Jesus' disciples beat them to it so that all the city goes to a different gate to welcome the real Passover lamb. And basically, as one of my friends taught me, Jesus steals the thunder of the high priest, Caiaphas. 
So much that as he marches into what we call the triumphal entry, and there's the palm branches, and there's the coats, and everybody's singing, the whole town is just screaming, and they're saying, who is this? Who is this? Because it's not the high priest. They say, this is Jesus of Nazareth, that then the Pharisees begin to rebuke the Lord and say, tell your disciples to stop it. Why? This is not how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be over that gate with the high priest coming from Bethlehem. Tell them to stop it, in which Jesus says, if they hold their peace the rocks will cry out. Now, if it's accurate or not, I don't know. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem began at Jericho. He goes Jericho, Bethany, Bethphage, Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem. It has been speculated that the rocks he intended were the ones the children of Israel put at the banks of the Jordan when Israel crossed over. And the river Jordan all the water stood up all the way back to Adam, the city of Adam, which everybody teaches is a typology of our sins being rolled back. That's where he started that morning's journey is Jericho. Could it be the rocks that would cry out were the 12 that testified when God steps into a situation, all your sin just gets rolled all the way back to Adam, which is what he's come to do that day. So he marches in and this is four days before Passover. And for four days, he is inspected. And the Bible tells us he teaches, he preaches, and then he's confronted and tested. Look at Matthew, um, Matthew 21. Part of the Passover celebration is you pick your lamb and then you purge all leaven out of your house because that becomes the Feast of Passover, the seven days of unleavened bread. You get rid of all leaven. Matthew 21, Jesus says, and now this is past the triumphal entry. Verse 12, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold the doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And they said unto them, hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said to them, you have never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. The first thing Jesus does when he comes into the temple after the triumphant entry is he cleans it. That fulfills Passover. You get rid of all sin, all sin, all sin. He did this. This was the first thing he did after his earthly ministry was anointed. He came into Jerusalem, cleansed the temple. He did it twice. And in less than three years or four years, they'd already filthed and perverted the whole thing again. I find it interesting that the Pharisees and the scribes were upset that children were singing and worshiping God, but they didn't have a problem with all the heckling and, and haggling over sacrifices and cells. That was music to their ears because they were greedy. But children worshiping God, saying Hosanna to God in the highest, that bugged them. So the first thing the Lord does is he purges and cleanses the temple. He goes out at night, spends every night for four nights on the Mount of Olives. In Matthew 22, he begins to be inspected in fulfillment of Mosaic law. 22, verse 15. And now watch this and just keep tabs on it. His biggest opposition were the religious people. Then, verse 15, then went the Pharisees. You may want to write them down, Pharisees. And they took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians. So we have the Pharisees and the Herodians. They inspect the lamb first. Master, we know that thou art true. And teachest the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute or taxes unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They said unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. They inspected him. They found no blemish. Verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, different group of people, 
which say there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now therefore, now there was with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, uh, left his wife unto his brother, likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in the marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. And so the Sadducees judged him, couldn't find any problems. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, now we have the lawyers. So we had Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, now lawyers. This isn't like Judge Judy this is someone who is an expert in the Mosaic law. We would say a theologian. Asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, the lawyer couldn't answer that, so I guess he found the Lord spotless. When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make your enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man for that day forth ask him any more questions. All his religious enemies spent four days testing him, inspecting him, trying him, and they found nothing wrong with him. In fulfillment of the Exodus laws and the Deuteronomical laws that you keep the lamb for four days, you inspect him, everybody has the right to come judge the lamb, and if he's found spotless, then you can kill him. This happened between the 10th and the 14th of the month. And when this is all done... Jesus turns to his disciples and say, you know the Passover meal's at hand. That's the night, the evening of the 14th. He fulfilled the laws. He was inspected and found blameless. Matthew 26, let's look there. And it came to pass, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, which was called, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of a very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when he saw, his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But uh, when Jesus understood, he said unto them, Why trouble you the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always with you, but you, me, you have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in this whole world, there uh, shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. This is two days before the Passover. The Lord Jesus actually was anointed with oil by three different women on three different occasions. When you flippantly read through the scriptures, as we often do, you conflate all of them as one. John's gospel tells us that six days before the Passover, Mary Magdalene anointed him. Here's two days before the Passover, an unnamed woman is anointing him. And then in Luke's gospel, chapter 7 or chapter 8, a sinner woman at Simon the Pharisee's house anoints him. What I find interesting is that each one of these 
anointings happens right before a transition in the Lord's ministry. In Luke 7, when the sinner woman, he's at Simon the Pharisee's house, when she anoints him and the Pharisee says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is, for she is a sinner. Uh, that is the conclusion of his Galilean ministry. When you study the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see he spends about the first year and a half really only around Galilee. So historians call it the Galilean ministry. He's just, all his little cities are there around Galilee, Galilee, Galilee. And then after that, he branches out and begins to move into other parts of Israel. This anointing happens right before that. John's gospel, the anointing, six days before Passover is right on the eve of his triumphal march into Israel. And this anointing is the day before his betrayal. So you see these God using women to anoint Jesus symbolically for the next stage of ministry. Men never anointed him. Sort that out in doctrine, but it is what it is. In John's gospel, the one six days before the Passover, this is clearly two days before the Passover, it is Judas that complains. Why wasn't this sold? And when the Lord rebukes him, you see Judas keeps silent here, and the other disciples just complain. But notice verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests. My conviction is that when Judas saw, he's not going to do it. He's going to let these people keep wasting money on him. He's got to find a way to recoup the money he's stolen, Judas being a thief. And he said to them, what will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? So I want you to see you have two days, then one day, then the day of Passover. So it's very cool when you study the Gospels because they give you the countdown of the six days before the Passover and everything that's happening is in fulfillment with the law of Moses. We happen to just kind of blow through there and want to hurry up and get to the Easter eggs. But you see on the second day, the, the first day before the fulfillment, that's when Judas goes and betrays him. The dinners were always eaten at night. Now the day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, that's the night, Passover night. Passover night is also when he's betrayed in the garden. They go and have the Last Supper, which is the first meal of the Seder, the Passover meal. Then they go out to the Mount of Olives. They sing a hymn. Pastor Okwokwo would always ask me, what hymn do you think the Lord sang? And I remember Pastor Okwokwo, one of my fathers in the faith, he said, I always want to know what hymn Jesus sang as he went to the Mount of Olives. And I thought, I didn't even know who Jesus sang a hymn. They go to the Mount of Olives, and that's when he's betrayed. And that's where his throat is not slit, but he has now been selected, chosen. He's ready to be killed. Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And let's come here. We'll start to wrap this thing up. Verse 47, Matthew 26, 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves. Uh, the Greek implies as many as 900 soldiers. We often envision 15 or 20 people, but we're dealing with 900 or so, six to 900 soldiers. And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, hail master and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, why art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, put up your sword unto his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. That might also go for uh, guns. I, I thought I would throw that out there. I have a carry permit. I have guns. I have a lot of guns. Huh. 
But if you live by the sword and you die by the sword, would it not apply to guns? And I know we're a Second Amendment nation and I'm not against it. Pastor Okwokwo, it bugged him to no end that I like guns. And I carried weapons in those days. And he said, what would you do if someone attacked your family, son? I said, I'd kill him. He said, and then you would be a murderer. I said, well, David defended his family and killed him. He said, you're not David. <laughs> but before we as a culture, even Southerners, Second Amendmenters, Gadsden flaggers, don't tread on me, errs, before we get too crazy, just read the words of your Lord. They that take the weapon shall perish with the weapon. And I'm all for self-defense. I believe if you don't provide for your own, which is security, you're worse than an infidel. But there is a fine line between caring for my own and being bloodthirsty. And there becomes this attitude that if you go looking for trouble, it'll come looking for you. It's spiritual law. And if you go around carrying a gun, just daydreaming about an opportunity, you get to pull it in a McDonald's or a Sonic or wherever you want to go, you just be careful. Those that live by the gun die by it. It's spiritual law and you get what you deserve. Jesus Christ declared it. But let me ask you this. Who told Peter to grab those swords? Jesus did. So Peter obeyed Jesus, grabbed swords for the prayer meeting. He said, have you any swords? And Peter said, here are two. Like, how, where were those all of a sudden? So he's like, throws the robes open. Here, just happened to have these on me. And the Lord says, that's sufficient. And then Peter uses it. And the Lord says, put it away. You live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Then why'd you tell me to bring them? I don't have an answer for you. My point is, don't go looking for a fight. Because I know how our culture is. We get a little gung-ho. We're happy to appendix carrier, lower back carrier. We just, we just got something. We just want to shoot something. I just dare some punk pull up at the Sonic. Uh, come on. The Lord won't even let me carry a big pocket knife anymore. I get to carry a little Swiss Army one. That's all I get. If I get attacked, I can trim their nails and maybe pull a splinter out. Do you need any wires cut? I can cut wires with this thing. And it has some tweezers and a toothpick? Toothpick? Huh. Anyway, I just saw that. Verse 53, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? And thus it must be. In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. The only reason they could take him now is because he had passed the inspection, and he qualified to be the lamb. They didn't touch him for four days. He was rebuking them. Matthew 25 goes into the, the five woes. He shreds them publicly and they won't touch him. But do you see the fulfillment? He's prophet, priest, and the prince of peace coming down the mountain. They say that's our king. They say that's our lamb. We choose him. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They, Jesus, not only is prophet, priest, and king coming down the Mount of Olives on a mule, on a donkey, He's also the high priest with the lamb. He's fulfilling that symbolism as well because he is the, prince, uh, the, uh, the priest. He is our priest. He is the lamb. He's coming with himself. He's fulfilling all these multiple facets that the Messiah has to come and fulfill, and they can't even see. He's just checking off all the boxes every step he takes. He's fulfilling that scripture and that scripture and that scripture and that scripture. The only thing he's not fulfilling are the genealogies, and they can't see it. The only reason they can come out against him and arrest him is because he has now passed the fourth day of inspection and he is free to be killed. Verse 56, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled, and that fulfills scripture as well. 
you see this Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, Migdal Eder, perhaps laid in the same manger baby lambs were laying in. You see him and the daughter of Zion conceiving and bringing back the first dominion, the first authority. You see him coming down as the prophet, priest, and king on a mule. You see him fulfilling all this typology over and over and over again. And yet they want to tell us we're foolish. They want to tell us that we don't know what we believe. They want to tell us this is a book of make-believe. But you can't, you can't make this stuff up. You can't ful fulfill this. You can't set up this typology for a thousand years, for 2,000 years, and then fulfill it with one man. And four gospel writers fulfill it or write it out and take care of it. You can't do it. It has to be done by the hand of God, by the sovereignty of God. And so let's, let's jump to the conclusion because that's the best part. Actually, let's go to John's gospel for this. I think I love the part the best when Jesus stills the high priest's thunder and the crowds run to a different gate to see Jesus come from uh, olives, the Mount of Olives. <laughs> and his disciples stir up the people saying, Hosanna to God in the highest. John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the sepulcher, and she wept, and she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and she sees two angels in white sitting. If you remember the typology of the Ark of the Covenant, you had the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled, and you had an angel, a cherubim in this direction, and a cherubim over this direction. And she gets to peek in there, seems to be the only person that gets to see the Ark of the Covenant fulfilled in a cave. Two angels, the one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain, because there was the mercy seat, lived out in a tomb. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? These angels. She's not even freaked out that they're angels. She's talking to angels. It's what emotions do to you. You can't even see sanity. We're not picking on her. She's emotional. This is her best friend. This is the only person that ever loved her. Why weepest thou? She said, because they have taken him, taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Once again, she's so hurt, so emotional, she can't even tell that it's the Lord. Didn't realize she was answering dumb questions to angels. Jesus says unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? So she gets asked the question twice, which means you're in trouble. When the Lord has to ask twice, you're in trouble. <laughs> Whom seekest thou? She's supposing him to be the gardener. And I just think, really? I, really? You just, did he have a big straw hat on? How'd you know he was a gardener? Why'd you think he was a gardener? What kind of gardener takes care of gardens that have tombs in them? <laughs> she said to him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary. Now that's it, because when he calls your name, there's no denying it's Jesus. Amen. And what I love is he knows you by name. No matter how depressed, how sorrowful, how cast down, how hurt you've been, he knows you by name. Amen. Thank God he can ask us questions, and when you're in your right mind, you hear and you answer. But if he ever has to call your name, he loves you. You're just in a little bit more trouble. <laughs> Mary, she turned herself and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, which in the Greek says, Don't cling to me. And I want to point this out, because we have often made our God a mushy, Americanized God. And he's all for comfort. We're to comfort one another. But Jesus, the risen Savior, forbid an emotional woman from hugging him. And the reason is very clear. It has nothing to do with redemption not being settled, which I've heard it taught that way. Well, he hadn't ascended yet. 
And I've heard it taught. It was very emotional service. It encouraged folks, but it was just not right that he stopped his ascension midway to encourage her. Why? Is her hugging him going to like ruin the whole game plan? Like a woman in need hugging a glorified body that hasn't yet ascended? Was it going to defile the heavenly utensils? What's, what's the reasoning? There's no real reasoning to it. I've heard it said she would have defiled everything and ruined salvation. Well, if that's the case, just wait till you're done with heaven, then come back. What's another 30 minutes? But the point is, don't cling to me, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascended I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now, we ask the question, what happens when the Lord ascends? Who does he send back? And what does the Holy Spirit do? Comfort. The last thing you need to do is become dependent on the flesh when the Lord is about to transition you to the kingdom age where the Holy Ghost is now present because the Lord is gone. Because then he shows up to the boys and says, touch me, thrust your hand in my side. What does it take? Because their problem isn't, I need a hug. Their problem is I need evidence. So he's always adjusting how he addresses people to help people. Amen. Amen. Sometimes you don't need a hug. You just need the word of the Lord to say, get up. Get up. She needs a hug. He says, go obey. And this is where I make the point. She's the first apostle. Which really twists people's minds when they're, they're upset. They don't think women can speak in church. Is your amening speaking in church? Is your singing speaking in church? <laughs> he says, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. The solution for her depression was go obey. Amen. The solution for your heartache is go obey. Yes. The solution is go tell somebody about Jesus. You want to overcome depression, discouragement, laziness, hopelessness? Get up and go share what you do know because yes. the Lord's not going to hug you as much as you may need it. If she really needed it, the Lord would have really done it, but apparently that's the last thing she needed. Because he's not about flesh. He's about spirit. He's not against hugs, but I think that would have probably put her off maturity for another decade. He said, you, you go obey. You just obey. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. And it doesn't say she said, now, can somebody hug me now? Because I'm still in need of a hug. <laughs> I think as she went and obeyed, the Holy Spirit came upon her and equipped her for what she needed. I'm telling you, we really Oprah eyes this gospel way too much. We're talking about a Savior who was born fulfilling Genesis 35, the Messiah coming out of Migda Eder, fulfilling Micah 4 and Micah 5, fulfilling Exodus, fulfilling Deuteronomy, threading all these prophecies just so we could have comfort and newness of life. All of it in a little dusty postage stamp sized piece of property in the middle of nowhere called Israel. I like to point out Israel is the only kingdom that still stands after all these thousands of years. We still know their history all these thousands of years later because God's hand is on it. And God wants to minister that life and that peace to us. Let's, let's close with verse 19. Then the same day at evening... Being the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. He says, Peace be unto you, even as my Father sent me, even so send I you. This is the commandment today. There's so many of our problems we could solve if we just obey Jesus. And I careful, we started this sermon out by saying work is a four-letter word to those that don't know God. But he says, I send you, which means you go. Going is work. Being sent is work. So much of our deliverance comes when we go and obey. We celebrate the resurrection. His work saved us. And now we build the kingdom. Building is also a work word. Verbs are very off-putting today. 
because nobody wants to do nothing about nothing, never. But our job is to arise and do something great for our Savior. To see all this typology fulfilled, how could you sit there and still feel sorry for yourself? Peace be unto you, now go. That's what the Lord says. Peace, now go. Not peace to stay. Peace, now go. And watch what God does in your life. Amen?